0: Hello, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a high school philosophy teacher, that's me, and his former student who's currently studying philosophy in college, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode 18, the fourth of a four episode arc on Ethics and Morality, where today we'll discuss the ethical system known as Virtue Ethics. But, of course, before all of that, Andrew, how's it going?
1: Life's pretty good. I'm just uh, enjoying this nice weather that we're having in Texas right now. Our weekly uh, weather report, as always, it's beautiful outside, so I've been taking advantage of that, but my allergies have been really acting up, so that's why my voice is a little, it's the word, like, cranky or um, craggy, craggy on this, uh, this episode, but otherwise it's been good.
0: Awesome. How's, how's your um teaching assistant, your TA job been going?
1: It's been a lot of fun so far. So we've, we just finished up about two weeks ago, we finished up moral relativity. I think we've had, we've talked about that a little bit on here. And then this past Friday, we just finished up this kind of mini unit on Marriage and sex, so that was really fun too. It's an area of philosophy that I was totally unfamiliar with, but it was really cool. And then this upcoming few weeks, I think this is our longest unit. We're going to be talking a lot about political philosophy, so that's very very exciting. So that's been that's been really fun.
0: Good. Were there any takeaways from from your most recent topic?
1: It was a pretty controversial topic, so. You know, actually something that was really interesting that I was not expecting at all was it was kind of an orientation or a discussion not around kind of marriage and sex on how that should operate, but one, how how much the state should be involved in marriage and, mm. and sex. And oh, yeah. also, um, uh-huh. if the state shouldn't be involved in, in marriage, then how should we protect the rights of children? So it was really very, very interesting. And I think it was a really good segue into our next topic, because I think the students were just really fired up about political liberalism, how much the state should be involved in helping its citizens achieve a good if a good exists. So it was a lot of fun.
0: Good. So as a facilitator... Did you uh, did you encounter any uncomfortableness?
1: I kind of figured I, I figured there would be a lot of uncomfortableness this uh, this week, these past two weeks. So what I what I did was I kind of uh, separated students into groups of two or so and kind of hopped around to kind of drop some bombs and to push them to be a, bit, a little bit more clear. But there there were a little bit of awkward moments, but uh, I think they handled it pretty well, all all, all things considered.
0: Good, yeah. I had my first awkward moment in class last week. We were talking about Augustine and the problem Mm -hmm. of evil, and that standard contradiction that comes up of a of a benevolent, an omnibenevolent God, you know, that allows evil that 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 age old philosophical chestnut. And uh, some students, well, it was it was the most engaged discussion we've had of the year. I'll I'll tell you that. (laughs) And there were some students who, for the first time, you know, openly said to other students that they disagree with what they're saying. And I think that was all handled pretty well and maturely. I don't think anyone's feelings were hurt or anything like that, but it's it's definitely the first time we've had a discussion where where people disagreed, (laughs) probably on a very personal level. Yeah,
1: that's a topic that probably hits close to home for a lot of students on both sides of the aisle. So I'm sure that was a I mean, I, I'm I'm not sure that it was. I know it was because I can re- remember when when we were talking about that stuff. Um, but I that's that's really good that they handled it well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: How's how's everything else been going for you aside from dealing with fights and philosophy club?
0: <laughs> right. So, like you, I'm reveling in autumn. <laughs> not that it's really autumn, but man, down here in Houston, we're always so ready for it. Uh, we did have our first nights where the lows were in the 50s, <laughs> so that was nice. And the highs next week are all in the mid-80s, which I know for some people probably doesn't sound very cool. <laughs> but it's cool for us. That And that means lows are in the 60s. Oh, so. that's so nice. Uh, oh, it is, it is. You walk out in the morning and it's cool outside. <laughs> and It's going to be great. I, I drove to work last week one morning with... Uh, with the sunroof open. Not that it was sunny. It's always dark when I go to work, but, but that, that nice cool air. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, everything's good. You know, life is moving along as it should, because everything <laughs> of course is in perfect order. Ha 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 ha. Tra la la.
1: Well, you know, that's a great segue to our episode, I think. Cause, um, you know, perfect order, a perfect end, great segue into the topic of today's episode.
0: (laughs) Right. All right. Well, let's do it.
1: All right, everybody. So welcome to the main segment of our series today. We're wrapping up the fourth episode with virtue ethics, one of the ones that I find to be most interesting and most compelling. So I think it's going to be a really fun episode So virtue ethics, just as a brief kind of historical background, has been around for at least 2,500 years, beginning with Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, going all the way up to the Stoics, going to the medieval times, kind of fell off during the Enlightenment, but has recently had a resurgence in probably the past 100 years or so. So that's been pretty interesting. But what is virtue? So, Mr. Parsons, let me um, kind of pass the ball to you. What do you think of when you, if someone says, what is a virtue?
0: Well, I think of sort of colloquial sayings. The one that comes to mind most easily for me and usually for other people is is, uh, is a phrase like patience is a virtue. Mm-hmm. Other things I associate with virtue is the, the four cardinal virtues. I also think of the word character when I think of yep. virtue. Yep. And, and of course, I think of its opposite, which is vice. So really to, to take all of that together, when I think of virtue, I think of a way that we can conduct ourselves in the world. That's not so much based on a particular system per se, but in the way that we personally conduct ourselves according to these character traits that we call virtue.
1: Yeah, so I think that's kind of a good foundation for us to think about. I mean, it is a very complicated subject, but if we kind of keep that as our North Star, that's going to really help us. But before we kind of dive into what exactly virtue is, um, how we can obtain it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I, mean, I want to give a little brief kind of framework that I think virtue ethics depends on, and, and that all virtue ethicists kind of have to Believe for it to be kind of a, a a compelling system. So, virtue ethicists believe in something that they call in Greek. It's called the telos. That's um, an end goal that you know everything kind of is aiming for, or not everything. Well, everything is aiming for, but telos is just an end goal of something, and so. I'm going to briefly quote Aristotle real quick from book 1. This is actually the first line. Um Aristotle is this uh does this great thing where he gives this really broad may, maybe not broad but a very expansive quote at the very first uh, first line of his book in most of in most of his books. So he starts off book 1, which is about bir- virtue ethics. He says every art and every inquiry And similarly, every action choice is thought to aim at some good. So that's half the sentence, but we'll go over the other half in a second. So he's looking around and he's noticing that everything in the world, in his opinion, in its end goal, in its telos, is trying to be good. So I'm going to use this example a lot, so let's just start with it. but.
0: It's not toothpaste, is it?
1: <laughs> no, we'll keep that for uh, the deontology episode. But
0: uh, <laughs> oh, okay, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess I think this is the, the the example I was taught with. So think of like a coffee maker, right? Um, like a Keurig coffee maker. When people are designing that coffee maker, they're not kind of aiming to make it not work well in most of its cases they were designing it to be good to to produce good coffee when we wake up in the morning our intentions are not we're going to have a bad day it's to have a good day so everything that you know is around us in the world literally everything its aim is to to aim at some good so what what do you think about that mr parsons is that is that kind of compelling at all
0: yeah it's a great axiom right If axioms, in fact, the right term, (laughs) I will appeal to the philosophy student on that one. (laughs) But uh, right. So we got to have this kind of guiding idea that everything is moving in a particular direction and that direction is good. Why would anyone want to do anything that wasn't good? And so whether we're talking about Keurigs and the production of those, we want to create good coffee. We want to create a good machine that functions well. And, of course, want to create good profits. Uh, And in order to do that, it all needs to function good, right? So I I guess probably where you're going here is that with humanity, our desire, whether maybe we even consciously acknowledge it, is that we as human beings, our nature is that we want to do good, right? Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's
1: a good point. Aristotle would, well, I guess... Literally every virtue ethicist, so I'll start off with Socrates for this because I've said Aristotle too much, but Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, McIntyre, they would all say that everything is aiming at some good. Every, everything in existence telos, everything's end, is to reach the good. So, and that's actually the rest of this sentence. So Aristotle says, and for this reason, the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. So let me bring up a quick objection that I, I always think of when I read this sentence. So I can hear people's thinking in their heads, well, you know, Andrew, that's that's good and all, but what about somebody who's like a, a bank robber, right? And they're wanting to rob a bank. How can you say that that is thought to aim at some good? I mean, obviously it's not, it's stealing, it's taking advantage of people, et cetera, et cetera. So Mr. Parsons, how would you, what would you say about that? How would you respond?
0: Yeah, that's one of my objections too. Uh, you know, when we were talking about it sure. a minute ago, it popped up in my head It's like for so for people who aren't doing good, you know, does that still result in a type of good? Yeah, that, that, that's almost a metaphysical question. Yeah. So I don't know what what's the Aristotelian answer to that.
1: Well, it would just be something like you know, those people, their conception of the good has been radically altered, and. um not altered, but it's been mangled, mangled up in their head. So the good for them, what they think of as the good is probably like money or something like that, which Aristotle doesn't think is good, but the good, or someone who's just like, you know, we've talked about this in the few last few episodes, but someone who's just like a massive hedonist, the good for them, they would say, you know, is pleasure, but Aristotle wouldn't say that as well. So Probably that the good has been kind of mistangled up. Now, let me talk real quickly about what this good is for humans, because I think that's kind of the important part behind all of this. So if all things aim at some good, then the good for humans is what Aristotle, I think Aristotle uses this term. I don't remember seeing it in any Plato, but I could be wrong, but it's he calls it eudaimonia. And that means I don't know if there's a good English translation of it, but what I've heard is basically happiness, but think of happiness on like a scale of not kind of a one-time thing that you feel but a state of a state of happiness that's kind of existing a state of goodness right that's what Aristotle would consider the good for humans Mr. Parsons
0: yeah yeah we yeah go ahead. Yeah, we've talked about eudaimonia before, and another word we've used is the term flourishing. Yeah. And for a second, talk about maybe the the conceptual difference between flourishing and happiness. Like, are those different in, in some kind of way? Obviously, some books translate it one way and the other. No,
1: that's a really good question. So, yeah, like you said, eudaimonia is translated in a lot of ways, happiness, Um, Also flourishing. I don't think it's one of them. I don't think one of them kind of encapsulates really what what the correct one is. I think flourishing is a really good translation of it too, because it's like once you've reached Eudaimonia, it's you're in a state of flourishing. You're just flourishing as a as a human. You're the best way that you can be. You've reached a state of excellence. So I'll go back to the coffee mug, for example. Think of like a coffee mug. What, is it, what does it do, Mr.
0: Parsons? Well, it holds coffee Yeah. in such a way that, especially with the design of it, hopefully the mug does not become so hot that you can't hold it. Yeah. But I guess if we were to get even more technical about it, you would hope it would be a I guess the fancy term that we use today is ergonomic, that it fits your hand well. Like the better it fits your hand, the better it functions. And of course, the better it maintains the heat of the, of the liquid, but also at the same time, not burning your hand and, and all those kind of things. Oh, also that is probably stable, like it's not easily knocked over or something like that, which all has to right. do with design.
1: Right, you're right. So, so I drink a lot
0: of coffee. So, (laughs) this is a really important question for me.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, now with with kind of that in mind, what would you say that a like an excellent coffee mug would be? Or, like, what would a good coffee mug be in comparison to just a coffee mug?
0: Well, for me, (laughs) let's see if this goes in the direction you want it to. For me, a good, first of all, I, I drink my coffee black. So that's going to have something to do with my explanation. This will be far more <laughs> in-depth than, than you're probably wanting. So for me, a good coffee mug is like a good old-fashioned diner coffee mug. You know, the old white, just plain white coffee mug that's sturdy and kind of thick and, and heavy and maybe holds hmm, eight ounces at the most? For mm-hmm. me, that's the ideal coffee mug. Because it has a wide base, it won't knock over, it's heavy, it's sturdy, all that sort of stuff. But I drink my coffee black. Now, let's take my wife, for example. She likes to put a lot of creamer into her coffee. So she likes those sort of bowl-shaped coffee mugs, right? And because that can fit 12 ounces, maybe more, I don't know, in those. And so like half of her coffee is, well, coffee. And the other half is creamer. So for her, my coffee mug is not ideal, my diner coffee mug, because like she's only putting four ounces of coffee in there, and the rest is creamer, and that doesn't last very long. (laughs) Versus the much larger one, which accommodates for for her creamer. So that was probably not at all helpful to your description.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. That's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. I can try again. No, 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 no. It, it
1: works out fine. It works out fine. So, well, I guess what I'm getting kind of understanding from your explanation about what you think a good coffee mug does is it it holds, supports your black coffee well,
0: right? Yeah, and performs well for my needs.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so that's what Aristotle would say about like a human, a human that's that's reached the good. They've, they're excellent. They've functioned well. So they're flourishing. They've done what their role is as a human. So let me backtrack real quick. Yeah, since Aristotle thinks all things have a good, then he thinks that humans only have one main good, kind of one. It's not just one good, but it's kind of like an overarching good that everything, all the other goods kind of aim for. And so I'm sure Everyone at this point is thinking, okay, Andrew, this is really cool, but how does this go along with virtue? So virtue ethicists claim that how one reaches this good, how one reaches a state of eudaimonia for humans is by practicing and obtaining the virtues. Now, the virtues, I'm going to do a little bit of translation because I think this is helpful. Virtue in Greek is translated as arete, and that is also translated as excellence. So I think this makes more sense when we kind of translate it as excellence. So virtue ethicists believe that acting in a state of excellence is what leads to happiness. And I think it's more compelling that way. What do you think about
0: that? Yeah, so I mean, for listeners... We probably shouldn't sugarcoat things. Andrew and I both lean towards virtue ethics as like the best way to determine morally good decisions, ethical decisions. So for me, this makes a lot of sense. If you're living a life that is excellent, a life that is of the best character that you can have, everything else kind of follows from that. You'll have a greater degree, I think, of... Peace in your life, tranquility, ataraxia is the Greek term for that, tranquility of mind, a life of virtue, uh, a life of arate, of excellence, leads to a life of flourishing because everything else funnels into that, and it's really an end result that you don't have to strive for at all. Eudaimonia kind of takes care of itself, that you live a flourishing life because you or rather a flourishing life results from living a life of excellence. And you live a life of excellence by following the virtues. I'm going to make one little disclaimer
1: here too. This differs across all virtue ethicists. So I think this is important though to, to keep in mind. So virtue ethics is focused on what's called moral virtues. That's also translated as character virtues. Now, some philosophers also would say that you have to be virtuous in in all ways. I don't want to really talk about this on this episode, because I, even though Aristotle thinks that's to be true, I think it's a topic for a completely another day. But we're talking about moral or character virtues. So these are often labeled as kind of the four cardinal virtues, as we kind of prefaced earlier. But Mr. Parsons, why don't you take us
0: away with these? Right. So the, so the big four, and they seem to transcend a number of different philosophical schools, Stoicism, Catholicism. The big four are courage, wisdom, justice, and temperance. Some people will say practical wisdom, and we can talk about that. But those are the big four that Aristotle identifies. And from those, you can come up with all kinds of other virtues. You may say, like, I mean, surely honesty is a virtue, uh, you know. Or patience is a virtue, as the old saying goes. But those seem to be subsets of these of the big four. So, so those are the those are the big four that Aristotle puts forward.
1: Socrates spends a little bit of time talking about them too, but I don't think they're as developed. Certainly, they're not as developed as in Aristotle and you know the Stoics too. I think I think we've briefly talked about this on our Stoicism ex- episode as well. But do you want to go down the list and kind of talk about each one for a second, or? Um let me let me say one thing first, too. So these virtues are also something that kind of is in the framework of the ethics is that we have a soul. Now, you can think of the soul as like a, a Christian or um, Jewish or Islamic or, you know, any type of soul that you wish. Or you can think about it in a modern agnostic slash atheistic um, idea of what the mind is it doesn't really matter but these virtues are aimed at uh, it's a, it's aimed at a part of the soul or a part of a mind that isn't like natural like it's not what makes our heartbeat or our natural like smell or whatever and it's also not something that's pure reason also so um, it's a part of ourselves it these virtues are aimed at kind of controlling a part of ourselves that kind of is, is naturalistic and animalistic. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of be referring to, I think that will make more sense once we kind of delve into these.
0: So here are the, here's my explanations briefly of, of the four, of the four virtues. So courage, courage is, you know, what to fear and what not to fear that it's often referred to or directed towards moral courage in other words, to kind of stand up and do the right thing in the right situation. So I'm sure we'll get to golden mean stuff later on, but, uh, but courage is that first one. Wisdom is the second one, and, and that's, that's essentially to know the difference between good and bad, if you will. To be able to navigate complex situations, especially morally complex situations, it takes a degree of, of wisdom. And that's something that you cultivate over time. The third is justice. And for me personally, this is the one that's, that's biggest for me. Justice is essentially to, to treat others with fairness. And I think with justice, you get a lot of subset virtues uh, like kindness, benevolence, friendliness, uh, honesty, all that connects with the idea of treating someone with fairness. And then last is, is temperance. So that's essentially what to pursue and, and what to avoid. Uh, another word to use easily is just the idea of self-control, right? Uh, so you're responding to situations in, in just measure without excess or deficiency. So if you're able to, to focus on those four virtues, right? There's a lot that we can talk about in terms of like subsets of those that are really important in terms of behavior and character. But if you appeal to these four, most other virtues flow from them.
1: I think that was a really good explanation. And I think that all four of these virtues are not like a one-time kind of thing. They're not something that, like you can act justly, but that doesn't mean you're just. You can act wise, that doesn't mean you're wise. You can act in a moderate way, but that doesn't make you moderate, nor does one-time act of courage make you courageous. These are kind of a habit that you have to build so that in every action that you make, it's it's an unintentional act in which you receive the
0: right kind of pleasure after the action has been complete. Let's try to apply all three ethical systems that we've talked about the last couple episodes to this scenario that happened to me yesterday that I'm still kind of conflicted about. And it is a scenario that I guarantee you every single human being has been faced with at some point. So yesterday I was at the store and I was walking into the store and a car pulls up next to me. Now it's an older car, probably like a 90s model, Mercury something or other. And it's a relatively, well, it's an older couple. Um, I would say the woman and the man were probably in their mid 60s. And she rolled down her window and she said, excuse me, sir, could you help me? so I said, of course. And so I walked over and she said that her daughter's refrigerator had broken and that she has children and a husband and not a lot of money and uh, all their food has spoiled and they didn't have any money to buy more groceries with. Would would I have any cash to give to them? (laughs) And so here we are, right? We're faced with this moral dilemma. Now, it's not a huge moral dilemma, but it's one that I'm sure everyone has been asked by somebody to, to, to give them money, right? So, what was I to do in this particular situation? So, Andrew, how about you apply uh, the the three ethical systems to this scenario? What should my reaction have been from each one of those particular perspectives?
1: Well, I think a utilitarian would probably say... Is is if I'm remembering your Peter Singer example correctly, probably lovely. you should not give them this money because you could be helping a lot more people by giving the money to another person. Is that correct? I'm not a I'm not a huge Peter Singer guy, but um, is that is that in the ballpark?
0: That's an effective altruist argument. Yeah, you know, let let me add one more wrinkle to this. She she asked if I had any cash. Now, I did. I, I rarely have cash anymore, but, but yesterday I did. I had cash in my wallet. So, so we'll see if that has any, any, uh, impact on this particular scenario. But, um, yeah. So maybe a, a utilitarian would also not only affect an altruist utilitarian, but a, a utilitarian might weigh, you know, my, my situation versus these people's situation and, you know, the beauty of of utilitarianism is that in a way it's sort of egalitarian. So like maybe my $20 bill means less mm. to me than it would have been for this other family. $20 might have meant quite a lot to them versus what it for me. Yeah. So So I don't know. I think from maybe the utilitarian perspective that they would have given... Some money to the to this. Yeah, person.
1: I, th- I think if we're kind of breaking it down on the the scale of just you and this individual, I think the um, utilitarian would say that as well. Even yeah, yeah.
0: Now here's another wrinkle. I'm sorry, making this more complex. Uh, here's another wrinkle. We don't truly know the intention of the person who is asking for the money. Yeah, and maybe that has something to do with the ethical decision that's made, or maybe it doesn't. But but I think for the utilitarian, it probably wouldn't Um, because you know, you might say that like, it's impossible to know really in that moment, what the true situation is. And so really it's just your action that's called into question.
1: I think you're right. I think you're right about that. And then I think the deontologist would probably say something probably similar as well. Right. Like, I guess we don't know the person's need in a, uh, their their intent or, or their true intent or whatever but they would probably say something like well if i don't uh, this is tough to weigh from a deontological standpoint too but i w- i guess if i don't know i'm try. i was thinking about trying to apply it to what if everybody was coming to ask you for money mm-hmm. that would probably mm-hmm. be tough for you so i don't know if the deontologist would say that but i don't i don't know i i i really don't know how th-
0: or to flip that, like you know, would what if everyone in the world never gave money to people who are in true. need? You know, it's a That's different true. way to look at it from a deontological. Um, and then you also have the issue of honesty, which is a virtue. But you know, if you go with deontology, Kant would say that lying right. is wrong. Lying is always wrong in any given scenario because we're not supposed to consider the consequences. It's just this person has asked me a question. I should be forthright about my information, and and here's where my uh, quandary comes from, <laughs> where I've been uh, wrestling with this mm-hmm. ever since that moment. Is uh, is I lied? Mm. Right, I, I lied. I told them I didn't have any cash.
1: Mm.
0: Now this is why I think ethics and morality is is really interesting in that it always takes place in the moment. A lot of times with ethical systems we craft out these very elaborate scenarios yeah. where we have time to think about, you know, pulling the lever on the train track or blowing up these people or what. But like moral decisions always happen like very quickly in the moment and in reality we don't have a lot of time to Weigh these decisions, right? Yeah. I'm standing in a parking lot with these people, and there's cars waiting to go, and all that sort of stuff. Like, I'm not going to stand there and, like, excuse me, folks, but give me a moment here to work out my calculus <laughs> in terms of what I should do in this moment. So, the thing that's been bothering me is is that I lied. Mm. Uh, I was dishonest to to these people, and then I have to question you know, exactly why is that. So, so if I, you know, wh- why did I choose to lie? Why did I choose to be dishonest? And, you know, a deontologist would say, well, you never lie. And so, you know, there's your, there's your black and white answer of what to do in that scenario from a deontological perspective. So now let's apply that to virtue ethics. Yeah. And I think probably justice, maybe courage, might have something to do with this decision. So how do you think justice might have informed my decision here?
1: I think, from the virtue ethicist's perspective, it doesn't matter what their intention is at all. the The action is judged solely on on your shoulder. So, yeah, wouldn't well, this could be a very easy if um, we were. I'll I'll make this easier for myself and and use Aquinas's virtues, one of which is charity. So, yes, in that perspective, you should have given them money, even if even if they were lying, because that's not hurting you. Money is purely, I guess, a physical pleasure. Now, they would all say it's very important. Like money is is important. It's important in living a good life. But it's not hurting you in the sense that you're going to be just like destroyed because of it. If they're lying, that's only going to be hurting them. Um, it's going to be hurting their soul, their mind, whatever, because it's making them vicious.
0: Right. I actually have quite a bit of guilt over this. I was walking through that store, just trying to concentrate on what I went to the store for. And I just couldn't stop thinking about the fact I'm I'm like, why did I make that decision? (laughs) And and it's not that that's the first time that's ever happened. Uh, Again, like I said, I think for, especially for anyone who lives in a very large Mm -hmm. city, they're going to be approached multiple times by people asking for money. So You know, ethically, (laughs) you know, according to my virtues, I, I should one be honest, two be generous, especially if I have it within my ability to be generous. Now, some of the things I say, and a lot of people would say, to assuage their their guilt, is that I do give on a monthly basis to three different charity organizations. So, in a way, you know, I could to to help with my guilt, I could say ah, but I'm already being just, I'm already being generous mm-hmm. in that I give to these aid organizations. So I'm already benefiting the greater uh, of humanity with my earnings. Mm-hmm. But yet that even shouldn't, you know, should that even be considered? And, and, I'm, and I think no, because like, you know, these aid organizations aren't coming and asking me for more money. Yeah. You know, this was an individual who I was in the position to address Right then and there, and there's a whole lot of other factors that go into that decision. Of course, that would be interesting to unpack. But I don't know. I thought that would be interesting to look at from virtue perspective. I I, I think I've I think I failed. <laughs> well,
1: Honestly. well, I think I think the the last point that you brought up about you donating some money is is a good point for 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 virtue ethics too, right? Like, I think that. All of these virtue ethicists would say, "Yeah, you know, you're, you're working on the the virtue of charity right now. It's not habituated. I mean, that's like a perfect example of a habituation process. You're you're learning the virtue, you're cultivating it, but it's not kind of an internal habit. That's what I think a virtue ethicist would say. But it's not like I don't think it's necessarily a a, a totally vicious action. I think it's just kind of a a virtue ethicist would say that." you know it's it's just a part of the learning process right like you're learning to be good you're learning to cultivate these virtues so
0: yeah that's kind of something again i will try to uh, you know ease my guilt here this is something that marcus aurelius points out actually of course stoicism uses the four virtues as their guiding principles for for just action well i guess one of the criticisms of virtue ethics and, and stoicism also is that it's it can be a person can be awfully hard on themselves And somewhere in meditations, I'm paraphrasing, of course, you know, Marcus really says, yes, of course, try to be as virtuous as possible. But when you don't celebrate being a human, Yep. because being a human is to to mess up. And so the point is to grow. And, uh, you know, I would like to also think that that type of growth that we're talking about is something that goes on throughout a person's life, no matter how old they are, you can always I don't know that there's a, ever a, a, a state where you reach ultimate virtue, right? No. no. Um, yeah. So, anyway.
1: Well, I mean, the fact that you're like you're trying to think about this kind of moment is proof that you're learning from your action, right? It's just kind of another proof in the pie that about virtue ethics. It's it's not just concerned with one action; it's concerned with an entire
0: life. Man, I feel so much better. I'm such a good person. <laughs> I've turned this around. I am a good person.
1: So I, th- there is a few objections to virtue ethics. I think we could, as a lot of Enlightenment thinkers did, and kind of why it fell out of fashion for the until its revival in the 1940s or so. Is we could critique its kind of metaphysical framework that it's existing on, assuming there's a telos, assuming we have a soul, et cetera, et cetera. I, do, I think those are for another time and place. And also, I don't think they're as interesting as kind of an example. So, one example that I think about a lot for virtue ethics is consider someone who has a severe mental disability, a, a disability so severe that their process of reasoning is just kind of severely prohibited to the extent that perhaps they couldn't even reason. Now, since virtue ethics assumes that all humans share one good, and that this good is cultivated by developing these virtues, these moral virtues that aren't just born into us, it would seem that a virtue ethicist would say someone with severe disabilities could not reach this state of happiness, this state of flourishing. And that seems kind of odd to me because if there is one good for all humans, it would seem that that would be accessible to all humans, not just some.
0: Yeah, I I get that kind of argument. So, you know, essentially what it's saying is that since a person who's mentally deficient to the point where they can't make rational judgments, that they can't employ virtues, I mean, I get that argument. My, my rebuttal to that would be, one, how many people are in that particular scenario, and that's probably not a great counterargument, but two, sure. is a person who has that type of mental deficiency, are they still not contributing to the goodness of themselves and of humanity in some way, even though they're not entirely aware and able to make rational, moral, virtuous decisions, um, but it's a good. I mean, it's a good counter argument. Well, do, do you have any rebuttals to it? Yeah. Well,
1: this is my this is Andrew Taylor's uh, objection to virtue ethics. My, I do have a few. I am going to save those just in the interest of copyright. <laughs> those those will be coming out soon. But let's see. I think uh, I think a good objection is kind of the Thomas Thomas Aquinas objection, where Someone with severe disabilities, they can still be heavily involved with the good in other ways, right? So, someone who's religious might say, Yeah, they can't cultivate these moral virtues, but they can still have a relationship with God. If God is the good, then, you know, they can still reach happiness. They can still reach eudaimonia. So, I think that's one objection that someone could take. I think another one is something like, Well, Courage for someone with a severe disability is looking a lot different than courage for someone without one. Just because, you know, you face those two types of obstacles in different ways doesn't mean that that person who has a, a severely limited disability couldn't be courageous um, and, and kind of cultivate that virtue in whatever way they could. Now, there there is one that I am not a fan of at all. Uh, uh response to this and and that I've recently heard which is just saying yeah you know like someone with this severe disability couldn't couldn't flourish and that's a harsh take to to take I heard that two or three weeks ago and I was like uh, this is um, this is rough but um, it is it is a response
0: Yeah, that's a difficult objection <laughs> and you know, to really unpack that, That would take us a few minutes for sure, uh, talking about what exactly individual experience is and can we ever truly know other minds and and all that kind of stuff. I guess maybe another objection, and this is going to be a rebuttal to the other counter argument. Anyway, uh, another objection is that it's Mm -hmm. so individually focused. You know, it's it's the virtues and, uh, yeah, but it's yeah, but yeah, it's your yeah, virtues and your character and you're trying to improve yourself and and it really doesn't consider others. Yeah. So in a way, that counter argument is creates an objection to the previous one. So with the person who's mentally deficient, what business of it is yours if they're not following the virtues? They're not your responsibility. No one is your responsibility in terms of following the virtues, you are responsible for you following the virtues. And, and that's really it. That's all you can, can control is yourself. I don't know if that's a good objection to the counter argument, but that's another uh, counter argument to virtue ethics is that it's so individually focused. So, so do you have a, an objection to that? I've
1: heard this one a lot. Forget if I mentioned this in the um, utilitarianism episode, but I had this friend who um, I was critiquing his involvement with effective altruism, and he was using this um, kind of rebuttal as an objection against uh, virtue ethics. Virtue ethics, and I think we talked about this with friend on our episode on friendship too. Um, something very similar to this. I think that it is. It's. A, I think it's a very on the the face objection. I think it's a very on the surface level because a virtue ethicist is going to say that. You have to be helping people to be good. You have to have good friendships. You have to you have to be a good person, not only to yourself, but to other people. That's how you become good. So I don't think, I don't think that it's anywhere near. I think if you looked at someone who was following virtue ethics in a, in a very clear way, and they were a virtue ethicist without any kind of like they were just acting like it, or they were clearly following it. I don't think anyone would say that they were being selfish. Yeah, they're they're doing good for themselves, but they're also doing good for a lot of people. And it's going to be affecting a lot of people too.
0: Yeah, it's like doing good for yourself and cultivating your virtues by extension does good for others. I mean, we're talking about justice, and justice means being fair right, yeah. to others. <laughs> right. Um and you know, if you yeah. want to take it to the stoic level, which again involved a lot of virtue ethic theory there's the whole idea of cosmopolitanism and and that we are very much so a part of the community and the and and of humanity and it's not an individualistic thing yeah i always think i mean that counter argument always comes up but i think it's a really weak counter argument i do
1: too i mean i'll just preface this out for people who um who haven't already figured this out i'm not married I'm not in relationships whatever, right? So I could be totally wrong about this. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm thinking of like yeah, if I want to be a better husband or a better wife or even better son, like that includes me working on myself. But that doesn't mean I'm it's I'm selfish. I mean that's that's me trying to be better for for someone else, right? Even if even if I am working on myself for a great deal of it. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and that whole argument is like, well, you're working on yourself so that you can achieve eudaimonia for yourself, yeah. and that, that, that makes it a selfish action, but I don't buy it.
1: <laughs> no, no, I don't either. I don't either. It's 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 a product. It's a product of your action. If you're doing it selfishly, then that's, that's literally against the entire point of eudaimonia. Anyway, I think we could...
0: Do you have any other objections? No,
1: I don't think so, but I think we could both ramble on this topic all day long, but I'm sure...
0: Oh, probably. I'm sure that uh, yeah, yeah.
1: people wouldn't like to listen.
0: So this is the last episode of this arc on morality and, and ethics. And in case we didn't mention it earlier in the episode, the, the book that we're referring to with Aristotle's The Nicomachean Ethics, I think it's a very accessible yep. book. Um, it, is, it is essentially students' recordings of his lectures, so it's very conversational. And I think it's very readable if anyone is interested in that. Uh, is there a translation you prefer?
1: Yeah, let me let me check this translation real quick. I like this translation the best. There, there's a lot, and I guess it's personal preference, but I'm really enjoying the um, W.D. Ross translation. I think it does a really nice job. There's a few others by uh, Terrence Irwin that's very popular as well. And then there's also a Joe Sachs translation. I prefer the Ross, but I think that one is a little more technical. I think the Irwin is probably the most accessible and it has really good footnotes.
0: Awesome. Well, there you go. Uh, You know, the opening tagline of our podcast is unpacking a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. So we hope the last couple of episodes has, uh, has given you... Something to think about in terms of how to live a good life. There are lots of different ways uh, in terms of, of of how to live a good life. Stoicism, virtue ethics certainly isn't the only one. You have the many Eastern traditions of like Taoism and Confucianism and Buddhism, and the Western traditions of Epicureanism and Aristotelianism and and Stoicism, and then of course all the modern ways of living like existentialism and effective altruism and there's just a whole bunch of them and can we sit here and pick them apart and do pros and cons and all that sort of good stuff Oh absolutely i mean that's what philosophy does but i think in the end if you as a human being are thinking about these things and how to live a good life no matter which one of these you choose to live by or you just cobble a bunch of them together for your own Uh, sort of moral view uh, and how to act in the world, I think you're moving towards living a good life and, and there's no destination there. So you're always just moving either towards or further away, living a good life. So we hope all listeners out there has enjoyed this particular arc and uh, have been able to apply some of the things to their life. So that is it for morality and ethics, at least for now. So let's move on over to the Quote Corner. All right, everyone, welcome to the Quote Corner, a portion of our show where we take a quote completely out of context, discuss it for a few minutes, and then give it an arbitrary rating on one to five star scale. So this was my week and I chose, I should really be more, more critical of the choices I make because I think I'm... <laughs> I, th- I think people are beginning to see perhaps my persuasion here, but uh, I've chosen a quote from Soren Kierkegaard, who is one of my favorite philosophers. We've probably done a quote on him before. We yeah. did an episode on him. But anyway, I ran into this quote last week, so I wanted to bring it out here. So here's the quote. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. So... What do you think of that one, Andrew?
1: (laughs) Well, I am tempted not to like it at first because I think like I do give it credit because I think if you try to solve life all your life, then yeah, you're not going to experience it and it's not going to be a good life. But also I think that, well, something solved means implies that something is like there, I guess. That someone's trying to find and I think that to an extent like there are some things that we need to figure out for us to live well to to maybe have have a better reality to experience so I I feel conflicted like I on one hand I really do agree because I think that we do get wrapped up in things but I also think that there are some things to be to be solved what do you think
0: yeah well bring in my own knowledge of Kierkegaard and that he's a proto-existentialist, you know, people really do get caught up in these big questions of like, why are we here and what should we do with our oh, lives? And, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And, and not that those aren't important questions and Kierkegaard wouldn't say that those aren't important questions. But he would also say and what he probably is saying is you can get way too caught up into those questions and all around you life is happening and you're missing it because you're totally wrapped up in those in those existential angsty questions right so so life is is uh is something to be experienced uh not necessarily theorized about all the time all right so <laughs> are you gonna make it i don't know um, <laughs> I need to go to are you taking all the appropriate medications andrew i am i am <laughs> okay good
1: <laughs> so um Let's hear this arbitrary quote rating, Mr. Parsons. What do you give it?
0: Well, this is just so arbitrary, right? I love me some Kierkegaard. Mm, four, four stars. Four stars. Yeah. Um. Hmm,
1: I will give it a. I'll give it a three stars. I feel
0: like that's right in the middle. It is. It is exactly in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to feel about it at all. <laughs> I'm just I'm just experiencing life. Oh boy, you're really experiencing the reality of allergies today. I so am. Uh, listeners will will have it edited out, but folks, he's having a rough time today. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, before we get into this outro business I want to tell everyone that I've got a new podcast coming out next week It's called Curiosity Manifold Episodes are very short form, they're all less than 10 minutes And it's just kind of a quick exploration of how big life is And and viewing it through the lens of some of life's most ordinary observations Uh, So uh, hopefully you'll want to check that out wherever you listen to podcasts Again, it's called Curiosity Manifold I'm
1: super excited to take a listen, so I really uh, really am endorsing it as well. But anyway, that's going to be about it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for spending your valuable time with us
0: today. Yeah, you know, we'd love for you to leave a positive review. Hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when new episodes drop. Pass it on to your friends. It's definitely the virtuous thing to do.
1: <laughs> we'd love to hear from you as always you'd like to tell us what you think of the show have a question you'd like us to discuss or a philosophy quote you'd like for us to rate
0: please email us at philosophy at gmail.com I'm pretty sure it says in the Nicomachean <laughs> Ethics that when you hit the subscribe button you get bonus virtue points <laughs> so uh, so even more so if you if you give us an email you can follow all of our philosophy of course on Twitter and Instagram and our website at Philosophy. Dot com, where you can find oh so many things about the show, including our uh, recommendations and resources.
1: Thank you to Kevin McLeod once again for the use of the music we use in the intro and outro. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time for a very, very exciting episode. And remember, when your life seems in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.